only to be uh, shot at and cut off and pushed into enemy territory and found myself on the wrong side of the enemy lines, surrounded by Iraqis in the middle of the night with a British tank organization busily attacking them with me in the middle of it. Meanwhile, American helicopters were trying to shoot me with missiles. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. John Cantwell, AO, DSC, served in the Australian Army for 38 years, retiring at the rank of Major General. He had tours of duty in the First and Second Gulf Wars and the war in Afghanistan. He began his career as a private, saw intense frontline combat, and in his final tour was the commander of Australian forces in the Middle East area of operations. John was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross in 2012 for his, quote, inspired leadership, deep commitment to his people, and superior performance on operations. He is the author of the best-selling memoir, Exit Wounds. This is his conversation with Angus Horden for Life on the Line. I'm Angus Horden, and I'm speaking today with Major General John Cantwell, AO, DSE. John, thank you very much for joining us today. It's great to be on your show, Angus. Thank you. John, it's interesting. It's 5th of April. We're recording here in Sydney and we're speaking to you via Zoom on account of the coronavirus and unfortunately having to keep all our social distancing from people, etc. But we certainly live in challenging times today. But let's go back to you. John, can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing, please? Yeah, sure. I was um, a country kid, I guess, uh, born and raised in uh, southeast Queensland. Lived uh, the early part of my life in the Dolby area, out on the Darling Downs. Uh, we lived on the Gold Coast for quite a few years before um, mum and dad took us tribe of kids to a farm at Kingaroy and uh, we grew peanuts and the like. And I went to boarding school for several years from Kingaroy, then joined the army as a, as a digger at the age of 17 in 1974. You're one of eight children, five of whom actually joined the army. What specifically inspired you to sign up? I just wanted a bit of adventure, I suppose. I'd always been fascinated with military things. I'd been a reader of youthful history about the Second World War, which sort of loomed large around uh, our family. Also had some family in the First World War. So soldiering to me seemed adventurous, exciting activity that I could do. And also just to get out and cut my own path, I suppose. So it was something I was always drawn to. I always planned to join the military from my earliest recollections. So I guess it was what I was going to do. So, John, you mentioned that you were at boarding school. Did that lead to cadets at all through that school? Yes, I was in cadets. It was compulsory, but I loved it. Fantastic. Back in the days when we lugged around 303 rifles and wore the old greens and webbing left over from World War II, and I thought it was fantastic. In fact, I still recall doing drill on the square one evening because we were pretty ragged at drill, and 
I just loved it. I just loved the rhythm and the pattern and the, and the one, two, three crunch, you know, and off we'd go again. That really stuck with me because when I went to recruit training as a young digger, I think I loved the drill more than anything else, which is a pretty sad thing to admit. But uh, anyway, I enjoyed my military work, both as a cadet and, and I just bloomed when I joined the Army as a young soldier. Perhaps it was also the teamwork, I imagine. At school, you no doubt would have played team sports like rugby and other stuff. Yeah, look, it was a classic boarding school existence in the late 60s where sport was compulsory, cadets was compulsory, pretty disciplined, all male, all boys in those days. And I certainly uh, played uh, rugby and uh, cricket and other activities and the cadets, all of which added up to a strong sense of teamwork is how we get things done. I I guess I was institutionalised early on towards uh, uh, life in the military. So uh, it worked out well for me. John, you joined the Army in 1974 as a private. The public sentiment was at that time, sadly, quite anti-military because of the Vietnam War. What was it like for you in those early years as a regular soldier? Look, I was aware of that. As a a young bloke before joining the army, I'd worked in Woolworths packing shelves and carrying groceries. And I do recall a number of the girls who worked on the checkouts having brothers or boyfriends conscripted. I also recall that as a cadet, we had from time to time, our annual camps were conducted by conscripted soldiers who were just idling away the last month or so of their tour or something. So I had exposure to those guys in a way and to the whole issue of Vietnam. And I certainly admired the, the Vietnam veterans. They, they looked like gods to me. They were so young and strong and just so poised. I guess they were inspirational even without trying to be to me. But it didn't affect my thinking about the military. It didn't enter into my immature brain, the politics of it. I just wanted to be in the army. I knew I would enjoy it. And apart from the difficulties of adapting to recruit training, I loved it from the get-go. I really, really loved it. And because I did, I worked bloody hard and gave it my best. And so for the, almost in the first time in my life, I got really positive feedback and I loved it. I basked in that. That was wonderful. So it was a sort of a, a really great relationship. Me and the army worked well. And John, I understand that you actually met your wife, Jane, through the army. Yeah, we were both on the staff at the recruit training battalion at Kapuka in the mid 70s. And we'd had a few, um, a few terse phone conversations, but had never met in person. There were some issues of administration that uh, I was impatient about and probably unfairly. Anyway, it turned out we met uh, in the, uh, the Corporal's Club having a drink and uh, it only dawned on us later that we were each the person we'd been annoyed at over the telephone. Yeah. So it turned out very well. We were both pretty young, early 20s, but here we are still married uh, 43 years later. Well, John, I mean, it's an absolute blessing that you married Jane. I mean, you obviously know that, but to have the career that you have had takes a special woman. And consequently, having an understanding and accommodating wife, I think, has been hugely supportive and and indeed, you'd have to say, a key component of your success. I absolutely think that's spot on. It's really hard to imagine how anyone else could have managed the enormous number of separations we've endured. We've spent so much of our married life apart. We've done it with two boys at various stages of their upbringing, broken schools, me being away when we had to move house. Jane brought the whole family back from Europe. We were on exchange posting when the first Gulf War started. Came home, uncertainty about the war. She got us a house and a married quarter. And she's done that so many times. We ended up having 22 houses in the military. 
22 married quarters or, or other rental properties in the army. And every one of those, uh, Jane did the bulk of the work. It, it, she's just an absolute star. And, and so many of our servicemen and, and women rely on their partners in ways that just aren't applauded enough. John, in 1981, you actually start your officer training. And even though in your army, you, you decide to go to Portsea. Can you tell us about that? I was in the intelligence corps at the time. I was an interrogator, which was a really interesting job. And I really did enjoy it. But I was a fairly young sergeant. I was a sergeant at about 24, I think, something like that. Pretty young sergeant. And I just wanted a bit more. I could see that I could eventually make warrant officer. And much as that was an attractive option, I already knew that I was in for the long haul. I wanted to do more and I had found that making decisions and doing the planning for organisations was something that I started to enjoy more and more. And so off we, off we went. It was a, a big decision. We only had just had a, a newborn child at that stage and it was a, a tough decision because we went, I went unaccompanied. My wife, uh, Jane, spent that year with her mum. So a big decision, but it turned out well. It turned out pretty well. A couple of times I had doubts while I was there, but Jane told me to harden up get over it, get on with it. And that was good advice. John, in 1988, you go on exchange to a British tank squadron in West Germany. How did that come about? Well, I'd been thrusting away to get that exchange for a long time. I, I was a tank, a tank officer and we had an exchange with the British Army based in Germany as part of the, uh, the NATO forces on the inter-German border. In those days, Germany was divider and uh, Russia and East Germans were sort of uh, looming on one side and NATO was sort of poised to defend Europe on the other. Really interesting idea for me to go to a place that was in a really tense, if not warlike, but certainly tense setting. It turned out to be an amazing time because while we were there, the East and West reunited. The German barriers fell. Uh, the Berlin Wall was breached. We happened to be in Berlin on holiday about a week afterwards and uh, by a prearranged booking. And so I got to see all this firsthand. And it was also fantastic soldiering. Really amazing time to be a young tank squadron commander. It was a wonderful posting. John, the tanks, are they the leopards that we had in Australia at that time? No, no. The, uh, the British were off operating an advanced version of the Chieftain and the Challenger tanks. Two different tanks, depending on which regiment you're in. We had the, the older version. But there was a lot of them. There was, there was many times when I was involved in a tank attack across, you know, a big valley somewhere in Germany. And I'd look around and I could see more tanks in that one attack than the Australian Army possessed in total. So it was a bit of an eye-opener working at brigade and division level with tens of thousands of armoured troops. Like a, um, a mini Kursk, you could imagine. Yeah, a little less lethal. But it was a wonderfully exciting time, both from a family perspective, because we travelled a bit, and professionally it was just wonderful, really wonderful. John, let's talk about 1990. At this time, you're in your 30s, and you've been a soldier for half your life. And then it's time for your first war. It was the Dragoons that you have your first overseas posting with Golf One. Can you talk about that? Yes, I was part of um, a very old regiment, the 4th, 7th Royal Dragoon Guards. I had a history of over 300 years at that point. So a very, very um, well-credentialed and uh, rather famous regiment. They were among the first British tanks ashore on D-Day. They were the last British tank regiment to be involved in combat on the last day of the Second World War. So they had a, a few banners up in the chapel for their, all of their accomplishments. I had been successful uh, in that appointment. I really enjoyed it. Had done well. My Australian training just paid off in droves without getting too sort of cocky. I ran rings around most of the other 
officers in the regiment because I was just trained better and knew my stuff better, even though it was not my gear and my place. But as it turned out, a, a war sort of started to um, unfold around us. I thrust away and niggled and, and pushed and shoved everyone up the chain of command to get a berth on it because my regiment wasn't going to go as a complete regiment. And in the end, they sort of pulled the regiment apart and sent us as reinforcements and, and roundout forces to fill up the regiments who were going, who had the, the more advanced tank. I mentioned earlier there were two tanks. We had the slightly older one. So I ended up going on to the first Armoured Division Headquarters as a, as a principal liaison officer, working directly for the divisional commander. So I'm imagining that you would have left Jane and the boys in Germany and then you're off to the Gulf. Yeah, I did. And um, only a month or so later, Jane had to take the family home on her own. So, you know, I was there on my own. She did all that work to get the family home. And I focused on the preparations for the looming war, which we expected to be a bit of a bloodbath. No one really understood the Iraqi situation and their strength. They had an amazing number of forces, but no one really knew how it was all going to pan out. It was a very uncertain time. John, can you describe your actual first real day in the battlefield on the 24th of February 1991? At that stage, I had been seconded to an American division. I mentioned a little while ago that I was working directly for the British division commander as his eyes and ears, his principal liaison officer. And essentially, he sent me to the decision point, the point where key things were happening to keep him personally informed, which meant that it was my role to be at the point of, you know, where it was all happening. At the pointy end, yeah. In order to get that to occur, I was sent to the American 1st Infantry Division who were doing the initial break in battle through the Iraqi defended lines. There were 400 kilometres of defended lines with tank ditches and oil fields that were set on light. There were millions of anti-personnel, anti-tank mines and behind that were all the defended positions. About half a million Iraqis defending this massive stretch. So I was with the 1st Infantry Division, their 1st Brigade, the morning that we launched the ground assault at about 3 a.m., following an absolutely stupendous bombardment by artillery and air, tens of thousands of tonnes of explosive being dropped onto the area immediately in front of our division, which was occupied by a single Iraqi Infantry Division. And uh, shortly after that, we rolled into the defended line and um, basically began to destroy a very, very large uh, numbers of uh, Iraqi equipment and soldiers and um, emplacements and artillery. An incredible day of the first exposure to combat, first sight of enemy dead, first sight of enemy wounded, first sight of enemy prisoners, taking prisoners and doing things that um, I'd only ever dreamed about and planned for, like having to, you know, button down under fire and uh, get out and walk in a minefield, not knowing when your legs were going to get blown off so that I could get to something that had to be done. It was quite something. And as someone who'd been training all their life for that, it was in many ways a culmination. It is almost hard for me to imagine it now, even though I experienced it. It was a warfare of a scale that any Australians have seen for decades, decades and decades. And indeed, the conventional type of wars we have today is, you know, really, you're just not seeing that big land force lining up against each other. No, no, we're very much into the uncertain, complex and probably much more difficult counterinsurgency type battle where you really don't know who your enemy is. We certainly knew who our enemy was and we had, as it turned out, massively better equipment, better training, better leadership, better intelligence and we just absolutely cut a path through them. 
we essentially destroyed the entire Iraqi 36th Infantry Division in about uh, a day and a half. I imagine that shock and awe, as we heard, was so overwhelming. When you went forward, what vehicle were you in? Well, having been a tank man, I would love to say that I was in a tank, but I wasn't. I was in an armoured vehicle, at least. I was in basically equivalent of an M113, as we know it, the armoured personnel carrier. It's a British vehicle called the 432, a steel box with a set of tracks and a motor at the front, very much like the APCs that we'll have seen in our country. It was configured for my role as a command and liaison officer. So I had seven radios, I had a, a young guy to drive, and I had a young Lance Corporal Signals Corps in the back who helped look after all the radios and, and tell me which set was on. And, and uh, we had one uh, 7.62 machine gun and our personal weapons and a couple of anti-armor weapons. And that was it. That was us for the war. And John, were you attached to a, um, a tank unit or you're just following up with the action? Or I remained part of the 1st Armoured Division all the time and took my orders directly from the division commander through his chief of staff. And so he would send me to where he wanted to know what on earth was going on or at the point where things could go potentially wrong. He wanted someone there who he knew because I knew him very well. He trusted me. We had worked together and I had indeed been involved very closely in planning our operations prior to the ground war kicking off. So I was in his head in a way that few other officers were and he trusted me to act as his eyes, ears and occasionally his spokesman at the point where it was hottest. So I was uh, one stage, as I said, with the Americans, then I was chopped back to the uh, division headquarters briefly, then sent forward on another mission to try to stop some, what we now call blue on blue, where Egyptian tanks who were on our side were attacking the flank of our own division and get in the middle of that and try and break up that deadly punch up. He sent me wherever he felt he had questions. So I was at night battles, major assaults all over the place and really only a few vehicles from the uh, the lead troops at all times. Actually, it's interesting, John, I remember Schwarzkopf, who was, you know, the overall commanding officer, mentioned that the great difficulty he had was because it had to be a united world force going back in. You had all these different units and they all spoke differently. They all ate different things. They all communicated differently. So I can't imagine, but I can appreciate how that would have made your role so much harder. It was really difficult, particularly dealing with um, some of the Arab coalition countries. Uh, We were really pleased to have them there. It was confusing because they had the same equipment as the Iraqis, Russian gear. They looked the same. That is, all the vehicles were painted the same tan as everybody else quite complex to try to untangle that. Surprisingly, though, I think the greatest complications we had was trying to untangle clashes with our American counterparts. We were on the flank of the Americans through most of the major attacks. The division, the American division that I had been attached to, the first division, and ours, the first British division, were side by side through the the big sweep right through southern Iraq and then into Kuwait. And on several occasions, their tanks crossed into our zone and, and shot up our vehicles and, um, and vice versa. And that led me on one occasion to be sent off into the never-never between these two massive formations to try to act as a boundary umpire, only to be uh, shot at and cut off and pushed into enemy territory and found myself on the wrong side of the enemy lines, surrounded by Iraqis in the middle of the night with a British tank organization busily attacking them with me in the middle of it. Meanwhile, American helicopters were trying to shoot me with missiles. It was a pretty interesting environment, to say the, to say the least. Um, I had, I, it was one of the longest nights of my life, without, without question. 
I understand as part of the tactics that tanks had bulldozing capacity to run over trenches, you know, run over Iraqi forces. Do you recall this? Yes, that happened in the initial break-in. At the start, before we knew that the Iraqis were not very good as they um, didn't present a very capable opponent. They had all the gear, they had all the manpower, but they just didn't have all the things that join up a really capable force. Good leadership, good training, good techniques. So early on, there was concern with how we're going to get the infantry out of their pits. It's a well-known adage that you need a three-to-one advantage to defeat infantry dug in. So if you've got a platoon of infantry dug in, you need a company of three platoons to successfully beat them. And that's been proven over many wars. To get around that, the American solution was the Americans that I was attached to, my brigade, American brigade. They used bulldozer blades on the front of M1 tanks with uh, flanking fire provided by machine guns and cannons to keep their heads down. Another tank would approach from the flank and bury them alive, running the bulldozer blade along the top of the trench. And that was pretty um, pretty awful to see, I have to say, and it, it haunted me for a long time and, and still does. I still have um, a lot of bad memories and nightmares about that because uh, they were still very much alive and we buried them alive. And um, that, was, that was ugly. That war was an ugly thing, of course. That was pretty ugly. John, the intensity of this deployment continues. I remember you said that you'd gone walking amongst minefields. What was the circumstances there? Unfortunately, I ended up in minefields on foot on several occasions. There were mines everywhere, less so as we got through the main barrier of Iraqi defences. And then we encountered a lot more of them as we got closer to Kuwait. Open desert wasn't so bad. On one occasion, again, during the early part of the break-in battle, I was still with the American Infantry Division. They had smashed that division, the Iraqis that I spoke about. And it was now time for the British Division, my division, to come roaring through that gap and punch on into the deeper positions and start to really get stuck into the Iraqi reserves and tank formations that were held further back. And in the middle of all that, confusion arose in one of the minefields. We had cleared lanes just one tank wide through all these minefields that extended for kilometres. A vehicle was blown up, hit a large mine that wasn't cleared properly. There was no way to get all the vehicles through this narrow lane It had to happen. It had to be solved. We were fully exposed. It was daylight by this time. The entire British division advance was being held up. I just raced to the spot when I heard what was going on and basically became like a traffic cop in the middle of a minefield. And then, in fact, that's how subsequently the division commander wrote up a little commendation for me about it because I ended up getting off my tank and then slowly, slowly walking through the minefield around the side of the traffic jam to clear a path. You could actually see the tops of the mines, the prongs of the mines had been exposed by the wind blowing the sand away. So I could walk between these prongs and I kept walking until I found areas that were wide enough for a tank. Then I walked back through the same track, got the first tank, had a bit of trouble convincing him to follow me, I can tell you, and eventually got a tank to follow me as I retraced my steps and guided him through the minefield. At every minute, I expected the bloody mines to go off either under me or for the tank to nudge one and and detonate. And I was only a few feet in front of the tank, so pretty tense time. It worked out well. We got it sorted and the advance continued. And John, I imagine when you were clearing the mines, you probably didn't have a mine clearance team with you. You were just going ahead and, and just trying to find your way. No, it was just me. There were pressure plate mines as well. And honestly, it was pretty uh, stupid 
thing to do, but it needed to be done. And I'm getting actually tense and shaky just talking about it, to be perfectly honest. You weren't to know that the Iraqis didn't have some air units. I know we had air supremacy, thank God, but if they had, your extended column, you know, could have been decimated. So, Well, yeah, there was that, of course, but there's just the need to press on. You know, we just needed to get going. Had to be sorted. Someone had to do something, and I just happened to be the Johnny on the spot. John, we shouldn't forget that the pretext for this war was the weapons of mass destruction. We knew Saddam had chemical warfare capacity. He'd been using it on the Iranians in their war for many years. You guys had all your chemical warfare stuff, or hopefully you did, and were anticipating this to be launched at you at any time. Yeah, that was exactly right. A lot of people get confused between the first and second Gulf Wars about the weapons of mass destruction. In the first Gulf War, which was in 91, the Iraqis had them and had them on show and were showing them proudly to everyone. As you say, they had used them on their own people and also on the, the Iranians. And yes, we were fully dressed in our NBC gear. We had many, many scares. The Iraqis were firing Scud missiles, which are capable of carrying chemical uh, warheads at us and at the Israelis and others in the run-up to the ground war. And indeed, the destruction of artillery, which could have launched these weapons at us. Another reason I needed to get that minefield cleared, because we were all exposed in a big cluster, there was a genuine real risk of this happening. And indeed, we found dozens and in the end, hundreds and hundreds of sites containing mustard gas and nerve agent and other chemical warfare munitions. So yeah, it was a real threat. Later on in the war, near the end of the war, when more and more of this stuff was just being blundered into, it had just been thrown away in many cases. A lot of it got blown up. Our air forces dropped bombs on them. That also tended to disperse the, um, the material around a bit, which was a bit of a worry. And certainly near the end, as I was starting to say, you'd go to a place and find just abandoned biological munitions thrown down a well, chucked into a gully or just stacked up and attempted to set fire to it. And so lots of us uh, who were in that time have all sorts of strange rashes and skin complaints that uh, have never really been sorted out, but which uh, I have no doubt can be at least in part attributed to the cocktail of burned petrochemicals from the oil wells, from uh, dispersed biological hazards, nuclear formed uh, dust, that is uh, uranium munitions were used all the time, depleted uranium munitions, and that when it hit their target would form dust. I climbed all over tanks that were covered in depleted uranium dust having been shot up. So I guess um, that explains the odd scratch and rash that me and many other Gulf War veterans suffer. And John, just the whole depressing scene of that conflict, like we all remember the oil fires, how they just blanketed the entire atmosphere. When yeah. we got to the Kuwaiti coastline, at the end of this four or five days of constant advancing and destruction, there were oil fires uh, all around us. The sky was black. It was raining through these black clouds. The rain was black. It ran down the tanks and they had this sort of black running muck. It was all over you, everywhere you went and looked. Um, there were destroyed vehicles everywhere, many of them on fire. There were dead bodies by the score, many of them blown to pieces. There were civilian vehicles. It was genuinely like the end of the world. It was quite horrifying. All the footage showed us that it just looked to you, it would have smelt and felt the end of the world. It stunk. I've told the story before that speaking of smells, a sense of smell is a very powerful emotional trigger. It, it can bring a happy smell, you know, smell a rose, smell uh, fresh air, smell fresh cut grass, uh, really nice. Unpleasant smells have the opposite. 
bizarrely, when we were clearing a section of road north of Kuwait City, when the Iraqis had attempted to flee in the last 24 hours as we advanced, they destroyed hundreds, thousands of armoured vehicles and, and a lot of civilian vehicles filled with booty that the Iraqis had pillaged out of Kuwait City. A lot of it was stuff that they thought they could use or sell. And so in the midst of all these burned out armoured vehicles, you'd find scores and scores of armed cars blown to bits or just abandoned, full of uh, exotic rugs, women's clothes, children's toys, outboard motors, crockery, cutlery, furniture items, and tons and tons of perfume bottles. Really huge Chanel number no. five, one litre perfume bottles were scattered everywhere. I guess when you're a rich Kuwaiti, that's how you, you buy your Chanel, buy the, um, the litre bottle. And bizarrely, the stink of burning flesh, burned vehicles, and Chanel number no. five was so thick you could cut it with a knife. Even to this day, if I have the slightest whiff of Chanel number no. five, I feel quite sick. It just turns my stomach. Yeah, smell is a powerful re reminder of warfare as well. John, if we look at, you know, from the first day when you're part of the advance till when the action sort of wraps up, what sort of period of time are we talking? It was really short. It was all over in, in about four days, four, four or five days, yeah. from the initial grounded assault through to when we declared, self-declared ceasefire was about four and a half days. Air War had preceded that for a couple of months and done tremendous effort to degrade the Iraqis before we ploughed into them. By the time we hit them, they were just lined up, ready to be destroyed, and, and we did. And uh, we, just, we killed a hell, lot, hell of a lot of them. Um, terrible loss of life. Very hard to know exactly, but the estimates run between 60,000 and 100,000 Iraqis lost their lives in that period. So, John, after that period, and even though it's a short period, the effect on you was actually quite considerable, indeed, for all those that served. You come home, but you're mentally quite shocked by it all, and it carries with you, and it carries to you to this day. You know, you've written a very honest book about the nightmares and problems that you relive in Iraq. How did you handle that when you came home? Yeah, I have written about it. I've spoken about it a great deal in public. I've done a lot of public speaking on this matter and a lot of lobbying of governments uh, in the last uh, five or six years. I don't do it much these days because, to be honest, I find it difficult, painful and unsettling. But it was also unsettling and painful at the time. I came home from that first war feeling very satisfied that I had been tested and the test I set for myself, you know, could I function in combat? Could I lead under fire? Could I manage my fear sufficient to overcome it and move forward when I had to and inspire others to do it? And yes, I could do all of those things, it turned out. So I felt good about that, professionally vindicated by my hard work and the wonderful training I had received. Australians are trained extremely well then and now and so I felt good about my profession and I felt good that we had carried out a worthy operation to rebuff the um, Iraqis who had invaded Kuwait for its oil and to try to pay off its international debts because of its previous war with Iran. 
and we had done the right thing. The world had united and pushed them out. It's a shame we didn't keep going and, and knock over the Iraqis there and then and Saddam Hussein with them back in 91. But anyway, that's a different story. It would have saved us the Second War. Would have saved us the Second War and heaven knows what else it could have saved. But anyway, that's not how history played out. And that was Bush's call and Schwarzkopf and, and the world leaders. You know, it was, leaders. and it was largely triggered by that decimation of the retreating Iraqis mm. on the road out of northern Kuwait. We were poised and ready to continue onwards. Now, it was never our mission to invade and subdue Iraq, but we, we were poised to do it. Unfortunately, even another, another day of combat operations probably would have allowed us to destroy the bulk of his armoured forces, and particularly the Republican Guard, and it was exactly those forces who we let escape uh, by political direction that were used to subjugate the Kurds in the north and the Shia in the south of the country in years that followed. That was those forces that we had to fight again in 2003 onwards. So it was a lost opportunity in many ways. History is full of those lost opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. Coming back to you, you've come home. Eventually you do see a psychologist and you come to understand that, you know, what you're feeling is PTSD. It's perfectly normal given all the circumstances and experiences that you'd had. Besides Jane, who else did you talk to about this and, and how did you get through it? I didn't talk to anyone for years and um, it was very troubling to me. I didn't, I didn't know what PTSD was in those days at first. I, I just couldn't understand why I was having all these awful nightmares and why I was anxious and jumpy and why loud noises upset me and why I kept having flashbacks in the middle of conducting a training activity. I would suddenly be back in the desert people trying to kill me and yet there I was actually standing on Pakapanyu range talking to a bunch of young diggers about how to conduct a, an armoured operation so it was very troubling I thought I was uh, losing my marbles to be honest because I didn't know no one had spoken about it no one had talked about it not at all there was not the slightest hint that there could be some emotional or psychological uh, scarring I guess looking back now I was naive for not having understood that I mean how stupid when you think about it of course that was going to be the case it seems so blindingly obvious now but it had never been discussed the emotional aspect of combat had never been discussed in the 15 years of my combat training in Australia not once and I never ever heard a Vietnam veteran or any other prior conflict veteran talk about shell shock or anything. I'd heard those terms. I thought it actually meant something about the shock waves around explosions. I, that's, that's how dumb I was about this issue. And indeed, when I came home, I was generally treated with a little bit of uh, casual disdain. Because it was such an easy victory as overall, a lot of my colleagues really just my uh, efforts, they sort of, you know, someone described to me as a drive-by shooting. And uh, I was expected just to get back onto it. I, I was uh, ordered to go and do a bit of a speaking tour. People sat around and said, oh, that's all very interesting. That's great. But then I was just back to work. And I found it very hard to just get back to work. It was a tough time. I think also, John, in fairness to you, like you were a solitary Australian posted to that situation. I know we had deployed some Navy clearance divers, but you were sort of by yourself as an Australian. You come back here by yourself. It was lonely you know, because, as I said, I didn't understand it. I had no one to talk to about it. In the end, the one person who gave me some semblance of support was my commanding officer uh, in the first unit I was sent to at the School of Armour. He was a Vietnam veteran. And he just said to me one day, oh, John, you don't seem your normal cheery self. You seem a bit, a bit down the dumps. Are you going okay? I think it was his quiet, subtle way of checking on my welfare. He suggested that maybe I could just go and talk to the uh, regimental medical officer, the RMO, uh, if I was having some trouble sleeping. It, that was about the extent of the conversation. 
I did go and see the RMO. He was a young captain, fresh out of uni, useless in terms of this matter. I'm sure he was a terrific doctor, but he didn't know the first thing about combat stress. He treated me like a bit of a malingerer, I guess. But in the end, I was sent with some reluctance down to the uh, psych unit at the um, Repat Hospital down in Melbourne at Heidelberg, where I was comprehensively made to feel like a malingerer. In fact, I was told to my face that I was a malingerer by a psychiatrist. So the treatment wasn't great in those days. And that was one of the reasons that I was so determined in years later to do better by others than was done by me in those days in terms of increasing awareness and understanding and compassion. But perhaps that's something we can talk about a bit more later on. At that time, I was very alone and confused. To quickly cover things before further, you have done some notable things. You're commanding officer and chief instructor at the Royal Military College in Duntroon. You're then an instructor at the British Joint Services Command and Staff College in the UK. You've come back to Australia. You've been promoted to Colonel in December 2000. And less than a year later, the world changes yet again. What's your memory of September 11? That was another memorable day. I was running an organisation called the Force Development Group, uh, working more or less under the guidance of the then Deputy Chief of Army, General Peter Lay. And it was uh, our role to help him through my immediate boss. I had a brigadier boss uh, locally, but largely we answered straight to uh, the Deputy Chief of Army. He wanted us to design a different army. Under his guidance, what we have as our army now looks a lot like it does because of that initial work. So it was interesting stuff. But to do so, we did a lot of inquiring, a lot of research, a lot of consultation with allies abroad in Europe and in particularly in America and with the US Marine Corps. And so I had a group of my officers, half a dozen of them, in Washington at the time. I was home in Pakapanil in my married quarter. I was having one of my nightmares, as it turned out, my PTSD nightmares. And I was awake at whatever time of the night it was, around midnight or something. I just couldn't sleep. And in the end, I turned the TV on and I could see these, this image of the, uh, one of the Twin Towers on fire. Goodness gracious, what's happened here? Turn the sound up. And uh, of course, we all know now what was going on. There were airliners flying into the World Trade Center towers, the Twin Towers. Then we heard that there'd been an attack on the Pentagon. Well, I quickly did the math and worked out that that was the day that my team was supposed to be meeting their counterparts in the Pentagon. And so I tried desperately to get in touch with them and couldn't and didn't and wasn't able to for, I think it was a good 36 hours or more. And we had no idea. Incredibly, when we did, here's the story, I'll, do, I'll be brief. They were booked into a room to conduct this meeting. And let's call it room, you know, A7, whatever. When they get there, room A7 is double booked. There's another group of Americans lined up to have a meeting in that room. There's a bit of a conflab. Someone pulls rank and the Australians get told, no, bugger off. You go down to room L16. Righto, off they went. Room A7 was uh, hit by that aircraft that flew into the Pentagon and killed everyone in that room. Those Australians were saved by a booking error. That was a close call for them. What a remarkable period of time. That's my memory of uh, the uh, 9-11. John, let's jump ahead now to 2006. You've been promoted to Brigadier and you're deployed to Iraq. What's your role during this deployment? And typically, what was your average day like? 
this was a job that I really wanted. I lobbied Peter Lay, who was by then the Chief of Army, to give me a, another shot in Iraq. I had been in Iraq, of course, back in 91. This is now 2006, a long time later. I wanted to go because there was, you know, a fair income war going on. It was a different war. It was a counterinsurgent war. I wanted to get into that. My professionalism, again, just, you know, forced me to want to get involved. But I also had this slightly naive sense that if I went back to Iraq, I might be able to do some good. I kept thinking about all those buggers we buried alive. I kept thinking about all those Iraqis that I had been instrumental in getting killed. And I just felt some sort of sense that if I went over there and did some good, I could repay that a little bit, you know? It sounds a bit a bit odd, but anyway, that was part of my thinking. But I guess the main main role was just to get into the fight. So my job was uh, as a one-star brigadier, I was the um, chief of strategic operations for um, the American four-star headquarters, the highest headquarters in Iraq, responsible for planning and overseeing operations for the whole of the coalition forces. And uh, I worked for an American two-star, so I was his deputy, uh, effectively. As it turned out, in that year, that two-star was put offside onto another task. So I ended up doing the two-star job for Fair Swagger that year as a one-star, as well as my own job, running and planning the operations for the coalition for the whole conflict. A fantastic year. Hard, hard, hard work. Routinely 16-hour days, for weeks at a stretch, 20-hour days. It was a very dangerous job. I spent a lot of time out in the red zone, got shot at, had road uh, IEDs going off at all times. We were routinely mortared and rocketed. I got knocked around in a rocket attack, busted up my shoulder at one stage. Uh, yeah, a very um, busy, busy, busy job. And John, you would have been also working with a multinational team as well? Yes, I had a team of um, about 50 officers working directly for me as we monitored the battle day by day. There were a couple of Australian war officers and, and uh, the like in that group. I had uh, Americans, Brits, I had uh, Frenchmen, and I had uh, all sorts. It was really interesting. John, I recall that you caught some of the Iraqi ambulances not actually carrying sick people. It was a very complex battle space. Not only were we fighting the remnants of the Republican Guard, who were the hardcore Saddam supporters, who we had basically thrown out of a job and then left the armories open, so they took all their weapons and munitions with them to become a ready-made army against us. We were fighting Al-Qaeda, who were in very strong numbers there, who were busily trying to kill as many Shias as they could, as well as kill the coalition infidels. We had a massive number of criminal elements who were busily trying to rape and pillage the country, but who used weapons and murder and intimidation as a um, means of business. We had a war going on between the Shia and the Sunnis, which was incredibly deadly, killing about 3,000 Iraqis by other Iraqis every month in the summer of 2006. And on top of that, we had a corrupt agencies working in the government. There were many of them. Most of them were corrupt, in fact. Ministry of Health was one, Ministry of the Interior was another. Constantly, what they were doing was the people in the Ministry of Health who had sympathies with the Shia militias would use ambulances to transfer kill squads into Sunni suburbs where they would murder several families and then jump back in the ambulance and be allowed to escape. Then sometime later, Shia police, who were also corrupt, would turn up and pretend to investigate and then compare notes with their Shia mates later. It was all ugly. No one was to be trusted. And in the middle of all this were poor bloody Iraqis being killed in the droves. But when I confronted them about this, I was told that I was lying 
saying, all sorts of strange things were uh, to be ignored like this. While I was there, I happened to see someone who I recognized as on our kill list, who was being welcomed into the office of the minister. He was a highly ranked target for Al-Qaeda. And as soon as I could tell our SEAL team who was looking after me, uh, they tried to get him down in there. We couldn't. Nothing was as it seemed. Nothing was as it seemed. And lying was just the way we communicated. John, could I ask a quick question, not wanting to draw too much, but often it's been said that because the Allies didn't engage with the Republican Guard, that they then went off as a rogue force. Do you think there's any truth behind that? And do you think if it had been handled better in hindsight, that could have helped? Oh, manifestly. It's irrefutable. The army collapsed. The Iraqi army collapsed in 2003. There was a decision point. How do we govern the country? There was clearly not enough American and coalition forces in the country to do it. Clearly not enough. They went in with too few troops to manage the peace. And so tens of thousands of trained, disciplined, led, organized, armed soldiers and police were available. The decision was taken by the interim governor, if you like, the American interim governor, to disband all of those against the advice of many military people. They did so, instantly throwing tens of thousands, in fact, hundreds of thousands of soldiers into the unemployment line, but at the same time, not securing all of the munitions dumps all over the country. Thousands of tons, thousands and thousands of tons of explosives, weapons, and well-trained soldiers became insurgents in the space of a weekend. And we fought them and they killed thousands and thousands of Iraqis and coalition soldiers in the years ahead one of the most stupid and terrible decisions in modern warfare. Again, we're drawn back to history, and I won't be long on this, but Mountbatten, after the Second World War, the Japanese had surrendered, then you know, kept the Japanese army armed in order to keep the peace. I mean, it's a great pity some of these people didn't study history better. So, John, you were on the phone one night talking to Jane, as I understand, and suddenly quite a bad bombing happened. Yes, we'd been getting quite a few attacks into the green zone, which was the area where a segment of Baghdad city had been walled off. And we were all inside and outside was the Badlands, the red zone, as it was called. And on this particular night, I'd worked a very long day, gone back to my little um, accommodation hut, which was similar to the sort of huts you'd see for uh, workers at mine sites, and was asleep when a very heavy bombardment fell in and around the compound. I was in my bed and suddenly there were enormous explosions around outside. I got uh, bounced out of my bed and along with the few possessions I had sitting on a, uh, my trunk, which was next to my bed as a little table, they all came bouncing and crashing down onto the floor. I managed to find a torch and turn the torch on. And I see amongst the things that were on the floor was my mobile phone, which I hadn't turned on for weeks. And it just happened to be on the table. I also scrambled around looking for my armor, my body armor and my helmet. Well, for this one night, I'd left the damned body armor and helmet in my office. Well, I'd left, you know, in a tired state in the middle of the night. And so I ended up hunking into the sort of corner and I had a little tiny bar fridge that worked about three days out of five and I hid behind, <laughs> hid behind the bar fridge trying to at least if shrapnel was going to come through I would have zone protection from a few bottles of Gatorade that were in my bar fridge. Again with this little torch I looked around and I thought you know what this could get ugly and the fire increased and I thought any minute now a mortar round is going to come through the roof of this bloody hut. So I scrambled over the floor, grabbed the phone, turned it on. It still had some life in it, and I rang Jane. 
it was a, a rather odd phone call. Very distressing for her. I said, listen, honey, it's not going well here. We're under fire. I'm not sure this is going to turn out well. I just want you to know that I love you and I love our kids and, and uh, I'm going to do my best to come through it, but I'm, I'm not sure, And uh, which is not a phone call any wife wants to receive. Uh, and it turned out then that I had to go because I could hear shouting and crying outside. I thought someone might have been hurt. So I had to just leave it at that and say, I've got to go. I've got to go and hung up and ran out to see if I could help out. So poor old Jane spent some hours before I could let her know that I had actually survived. John, there's lots of incidents like that. There's another time that you have an explosive trip quite literally down at the markets. Uh, yeah, this is an awful story. If you've got little kids... <laughs> Listen to another story for a little while. I've been trying very much to um, reduce the killings. I mentioned these extrajudicial killings that were going on where gangs of one group, Shia or Sunni, one or the other, would cross into another neighbourhood that was of the opposite sect and carry out really brutal killings and beheadings and all sorts. And uh, I just I thought we've got to try to stop this. So one of the, my things that I got going was we, we walled off suburbs. So if it was a suburb that was principally sheer, we'd stick a great concrete wall three metres high all around it. We'd put one checkpoint and we would control the exit and entry point. If we left it to the Iraqi police or military, they were just corrupt and they'd let the kill squads in and then wave to them as they left. So we had this going as a trial because there was some scepticism about whether this could work. So I was in the trial location and it had been working. And while we were there, a car bomb went off just up the road. And there were car bombs going off every day by the, by the dozens and killing hundreds of people every day. And so we raced up there. We were the first on the spot. And it was a marketplace where Iraqi women would come to exchange their empty gas bottles. There was no reticulated gas. The power was very unreliable. And so every Thursday, which was market day, women could change their gas bottles. And so the square was thronged with Iraqi women in their black, you know, outer garments. And there was a tractor towing a large trailer piled high with gas bottles in the back. Of course, there's no child mining in Iraq and uh, in those days. So they all had their kids with them. And so there were women everywhere with their kids. And you just imagine the scene, they're all crowding around. Here's my gas bottle. Here's my gas bottle. And in the middle of all this, a car bomb was driven up. The driver got out, ran away, and the car bomb was detonated. And that's what we heard. We arrived a few minutes later, and um, it was a scene of utter, utter depravity, and, and it was horrible uh, in every sense of the word. And there were many, many killed, many in terrible, terrible state, a lot of women and a lot of, ki a lot of kids. And um, at one stage, uh, my young Captain American, who was with me, was becoming very distressed at the sight of all the children because we... We tried to help. By then, all the Iraqi men who were flooding into the square attacked us because we were touching their women and children. So we had to stand there and just watch these people dying and bleeding out in front of us for the want of a tourniquet. And so I took my young captain and aside, who had a young daughter, and said, come on, mate, we don't need to be looking at this. So we walked to the side of the wall to get the square to get away from the, the blood and the mess because we were literally standing in blood. And um, we stopped just to draw breath, and I looked down and... There was another huge puddle of blood in front of me and um, there was a pink thong, a little sandal, you know, like just a foam thong with the Disney characters on the straps floating in this puddle of blood and there was another thong somewhere else just nearby. And then I realised that the wall behind this puddle of blood was splattered in, um, in gore and uh, it dawned on me that what I was seeing on the wall was the remains of the little girl whose shoes she had been blown out of. So 
uh, I chose the wrong place to uh, take my young captain, and we both um, we both recoiled in horror and, uh, and went somewhere else to try to do some good elsewhere, um, elsewhere in the square. Uh, so yeah, that was that was a pretty real moment. John, we'll we'll just pause for a moment. John, it's been fifteen years since your last combat experience in the Gulf. While you're not always in the thick of combat on this tour due to your rank, the burden of command is still a heavy one. You're literally making life and death decisions. The lives of your soldiers is quite literally in your hands. How is your mental health during the deployment and afterwards? Uh, during the deployment in 2006, it was, uh, I was fine, fine in a sense. I had got some help in the years since um, the first Gulf War. Eventually uh, had some, some time with a psychologist. I even had uh, some medication for a little while. But I'd done all that on the, on the sly. I hadn't done it through defence because my sense was probably rightly that my career would be over if I started talking about this stuff. And in any case, I'd started to develop some coping strategies. And that really relied on my wife, Jane, helping me at difficult times. But I became very good at pretending I was fine. And, uh, you know, looking back now, that was the wrong thing to do. Absolutely the wrong thing to do. I should have been more active in getting help and being more honest with everyone. But I was still performing at the head of the queue. You know, I was, I was a high performer. I guess it's a bit like people who have other um, disabilities, you know, whether it's, I've heard of high-performing alcoholics and the things like that. I guess I was a high-performing PTSD sufferer. And no one at work suspected I had anything wrong because I got to a point where I could quarantine my life and my mind. I could deal with the nightmares. I'd give myself a talking to in the morning while I shaved, very much try to put that aside. Occasionally, I'd have to stop on the drive to work and I'd have a weep sometimes if things were still difficult. And then I'd get out and walk around the car, do some deep breathing, give myself an uppercut, get in the car, go to work. And then I could be the leader and the, the colleague and the friend and the decision maker and the high achiever that everyone expected. And that's what I did. So I applied the same philosophy when I was in Iraq. At the time, the issues were so many, so confusing, so constantly one upon the other. You had no time to dwell on it. I was working stupid hours. I was tired than I've ever been in my life. And occasionally, you know, I'd have the blues, but that was because of what I was seeing at that time. I didn't have nightmares. I was too tired to have nightmares. My, I was getting four or six hours of sleep. If I was lucky, lucky, that, were, that was a good night. And I was just zonked. So my mental health was fine. And I continued to operate at the very top of my game and was was recognized for that formally and informally so i guess i was able to manage that issue john i think it's also well known you know the the analogy of the bear chasing the man through the woods and how quickly you run how the adrenaline kicks in and it keeps you going through those high pressure problems uh, the problem is that you then suffer the adrenal exhaustion because you are living off adrenaline and then eventually when you wind down you know it, it catches you we're going to move on, but I just wanted to note here with regard to your achievements. So first of all, you are promoted on the field to Major General in late 2006, which I believe is probably the first time in over 60 years an Australian's been promoted to Major General whilst actually on operations. And during the same ceremony, you are made an Officer of the Legion of Merit from America. And the following January, you're appointed Deputy Chief of the Army, and you're also made an Officer of the Order of Australia for your distinguished service in Iraq. 
it's well-deserved recognition for this incredible service you've already given. Thanks for those, um, those remarks. I was very honoured and pleased to get them. It was nice to be recognised for so much hard work. I have a lot of good memories of that time. People who were just wonderful to be around and who were so brave and so courageous and endured so much and had such compassion. But there's lots of it I would rather forget. But, you know, that's, uh, that's life. John, thank you for sharing these experiences. We'll continue our broadcast with you. I think we've said enough for the day. Thank you. That was the first part of our interview with John Cantwell. Join us tomorrow for the rest of John's story, where he talks to Angus about commanding forces in Afghanistan, the responsibility of command, and the importance of talking openly and honestly about trauma. Here's a clip from the next episode. The losses in 2010 were significant. We lost 10 killed in action and 64 wounded. Many of those were terrible wounds, life-changing wounds. Follow this podcast at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at LOTL Pod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening and lest we forget.